Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hi, everyone. Welcome to There's No Business Like. We're so excited to have you join us for today's episode, an interview with the magician and actor Max Darwin. I'm here with all of my friends. Everyone say hi. Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Josh. Josh Benson from Marion, Illinois, the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. This is Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, now part of the Quad Cities. (laughs) (laughs) And I, of course, am Katie Miller, Senior Manager of Community Engagement at the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. So we are going to talk with Max Darwin today. He is a wonderful um, magician and actor. You might know him as the Amazing Max. He does a touring magic show as well as a show in New York City, which we're going to get into as a part of the interview. Uh, But I wanted to ask you all to kick off today. Is there a specific moment or influence from when you were young that led you to your career today? Without a doubt, yes. Yeah, when I was in eighth grade, I quit playing football. Um, I played football for three years, absolutely loved it. And then for a whole slew of reasons, I I stopped playing. And because of that, I had free time. And at around the same time, the high school where I grew up needed guys for the musical Cinderella. And so I had spare time, so I did it. And it is a direct correlation to where I am today because I met a woman by the name of Stephanie Adams, I guess now is Stephanie Taylor. And she got me into everything theater related. And quickly I realized like the impact the arts had on my life and how I wanted to like share that impact with other people. And so that's what really led me to what I do today. Danielle, how about you? Yeah, so I was nine and there was a theater in our town and they put an ad in the newspaper of which I used to read. It was for a theater camp that was starting in the following week, but you had to be 10. And I begged my mom to call and see if they would admit a nine-year-old, and they wouldn't. My mom was like, she's never said anything about theater before. Like, this isn't, I'm not going to pay for this. She's going to go once and not want to go. And so she, she just said, you know what? Cut it out, save it, and then we'll ask next year when you're 10. And I was like, all right, cool. So I cut it out and I put it on top of my dresser. And like throughout the year, I watched it turn from like newsprint to yellowish. That May, I brought it back. I brought this tiny piece of paper back to her and was like, okay, I'm ready. And (laughs) was just floored. And then that experience just, it just changed my brain. Just, this is an incredible thing to do. Josh. I have vivid memories of playing one of the three blind mice in second grade and like absolutely loving it. Like, I remember the scenery. I, I remember everything. It's such a vivid, like, imprinted memory. I had just transferred from a private school to public schools, and it was the first thing that I, like, loved doing going to public schools that year. Fast forward just a year after that, at the age of eight, I started running sound for my, for my dad's band. And so I started getting into the tech world at the age of eight and have never looked back since. We had this crazy thing happen my eighth grade year of high of uh, junior high, the ceilings collapsed in our junior high due to a roof leak, and they were all filled with asbestos. And so all the schools, all the grades in the junior high got relocated for the rest of the year. We got relocated to the high school, and so the speech and theater team let any kids get a taste of theater do like a volunteer theater class that year. That's the only time it's ever happened. 
and I fell in love, and I've never looked back. Brian. I grew up in a very musical family on my father's side. My grandmother was a professional opera singer, and my grandfather was a Juilliard singer who was who did a lot of crooning and stuff back way before I was born. Um, in fact, before my parents were born. But we had a lot of large uh, family gatherings, and, and we'd have sing-alongs every time we got together. Um, somebody, my aunt, would, who was a pianist, um, who graduated you know, with her master's degree in piano studies, would always jump on the piano, and somebody would bring out some guitars, and there'd you know, be all kinds of music happening. And the kids would get involved, too. Um, and I remember when, my, when I was about five years old, uh, we were the first people I knew, <laughs> and family or friends or anywhere, to have a VHS camera. And we then turned those big sing-alongs into uh, making our own version of the gong show where everybody performed a skit. <laughs> some people sang, some people did something funny. I remember my cousins would do karate. You know, there would be, everybody would get involved. And, um, and so I just, like, I, it's always been part of my life. But I do remember the first time going to a professional, well, two, two times around the same time when I was in about first or second grade, I had a school trip to see the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus at Madison Square Garden, and that's imprinted in my brain, um, just the, the spectacle of it all and the energy and the excitement. And then there used to be a TV show, a kid's TV show. It was called The Magic Garden, and it was these two ladies that sang uh, songs. That, you know, it was just very musical, and um, I got to see them live in a concert. And that was like, I think it was my first concert, and... And I just really was hooked by that experience, too. So I guess if I had to pick, it would be probably the circus and that concert with the Magic Garden ladies, Paula and Carol. Thank you all for sharing that. I really enjoyed hearing everyone's origin stories. So for me, I certainly had some really formative experiences that pushed me in a theater performance direction when I was young. But in terms of my administrative career, I really think back to this moment when I was in college. I had gone in, I was studying political science, communications, and theater, and initially wanted to, you know, be on a performance track, but my professors were really pushing me into a stage management direction production track. And they said, you should stage manage Metamorphoses by Mary Zimmerman, which if you know that play, it's a very, it's very short. It's about 70 to 80 minutes. It's staged in straight through. Um, so I was stage managing this play for the first time ever, stage managing hundreds and hundreds of cues in like a 70 minute show. It was like 600 plus cues I was calling in a 70 minute show. So you can imagine how stressful that was. Um, and my professor Stephen had brought in a lighting designer from Milwaukee, a professional LD, to light the show because it was kind of a really big production for us. And when all was said and done, when he had done what he needed to do and we were moving into shows, I came into the booth one day and there was a sticky note on my stage management binder, binder that said, you're a rock star. You should do this for a career. And that was it. It was like, oh, wow, that was the, the validation and the reinforcement I needed um, to know that I was really good at kind of the organizational side and the creative side of this industry and I think that was like a really pivotal moment in me thinking oh I can do admin as a career I don't have to be a performer I can do more of the creative side more of the administration side um that was and I don't I honestly don't remember who this lighting designer was I only worked with him this one time but that it was a, a huge moment for me um to just have that little note. Um, and it set me on a completely different path than I think I was expecting when I went to school. 
And now we're going to go into our conversation with Max. I think you all will really enjoy it. And just want to mention kind of the secondary character in this interview is Max's agent and wife, Christine Cox of C Squared Entertainment, plays a huge part in Max's story. So just want to make sure we all know who Max is talking about when he mentions Christine. So uh, enjoy the interview and we'll see you on the other side. Hi, my name is Max Darwin. People might know me as The Amazing Max. I've had my own off-Broadway magic show for 11 years, and we also toured around the country to theaters of every shape and size, including Midland, Michigan, where I know the beautiful and talented Katie Miller from. Yes, absolutely. Well, welcome, Max, to There's No Business Like. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you, Katie. And we do know each other, actually, because we have worked together. The Amazing Max Show was my very first presented show when we came back from the pandemic. It was my second live show. It was so great for everyone to be back together, feeling excited to be at a live thing again, not in their backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It was an amazing feeling. And our venue was so grateful to have you as our first live show kind of back in person. And we had little kids, we had adults without kids, we had families of all generations, grandparents, really excited, like you said, to be back together in a really kind of cool setting that we had created in the front of our venue here in Midland, Michigan. It was very smart of you guys. It was very smart thinking and planning. You know, not everybody, I'm not putting anybody down, but not everybody thought outside of the box like that. Um, A lot of people just said, I've just got to wait this out instead of what can we do with this downtime? Let's start with your origin story. Um, I really want to know how you got into magic, how you got into performing. Um, Where did you come from and how did you get where you are today? So I grew up in Washington, DC. When I was a kid, my parents were street performers. And when I was born, I was quickly shuffled into the act. Um, My parents' act was called The Wonder Company, and they were mimes, and they did this mime act. This was back in the early 80s, coming out of the late 70s, when mime and Marcel Marceau was a very hip thing. But it's also a really beautiful thing when done well, telling stories. And at the end, they would bring me out as a baby and they would just literally, like the Lion King, hold me up as the end of a production number. And I mean, if that doesn't get applause or have somebody throw a dollar in the bucket. So the house I grew up in was filled with creativity and toys and props Um, And things that other people might not have lying around, like there was always juggling clubs lying around my house. I was, I, they were always there, my mom's juggling clubs. And my dad uh, grew up in Dallas and there's a great old magic store in Dallas. I, I hope it's still open called Douglas Magic Land. Young people today might not remember Mark Wilson, but Mark Wilson was a very famous magician in the 70s and the 80s. And when my dad was a kid, he would go to this magic store and Mark Wilson was the guy behind the counter and he would show my dad tricks. So my dad grew up with this love of magic, um, but never was a magician, just a love of magic and had some magic tricks. And my dad would do some magic in their act. So when I grew up, I grew up around this stuff. I was also fortunate enough that in D.C., it's now sadly closed, but there was a wonderful brick and mortar magic shop called Al's Magic Shop. When I was like four and five and six, 
my dad would take me to this magic store once a week or so. And this incredible guy, Al Cohen, who lots of magicians call the greatest demonstrator in all of uh, magic shops ever. I mean, the guy was amazing. You walk into this place, it was might as well be Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a skeleton hand coming out of the wall. <laughs> and there, there's, a, there's a, a half dollar on the floor that you can't pick up because it's, right. it's glued down. But you see it and you try to pick it up every time and you can't get it. Um, and he would stand there and he would show me every trick that existed. Amazing. That was my intro into magic tricks and being fooled. And that feeling that, that we get as humans when we're fooled in the best way, uh, in a joyful way, Mm -hmm. not, I stole your pocketbook. (laughs) I never thought that being a magician was a job Mm -hmm. until somebody paid me to do it. Mm. I always had a deck of cards in my pocket or in my backpack. I was always happy and excited to show someone a trick if it felt appropriate. I wasn't the guy that would walk around and be like, hey, you want to see something cool? But if we're talking and I have a brand new, amazing brain buster and just very organically work it into hanging out with my friends, I would always do that. I went to acting high school in DC. I went to Duke Ellington School for the Arts, an awesome school. I'm so grateful. It had such a huge impact on who I am. There's actually the Netflix special on uh, right now where Dave Chappelle talks to my high school because he went to my high school as well a few years before me. Uh, I went there for theater because I was like, you know what? I'm going to be an actor. When I found out in middle school that there was a high school you could go to and study acting, I was like, yeah, what an amazing opportunity. I was like, I didn't know that existed. That was a moment of wonder. And I went and I auditioned and I got in. You had to audition to get in. And they had an amazing music program and dance program. And then it was just this environment that fostered community and creativity. And we would go to the music shows and the dance shows and they would all come see our plays. And, uh, It was this just beautiful ecosystem of art and the natural progression was, well, if that works and this is fun and I'm going to do this, I think I want to do this with my life when I'm like, I don't know, 16 or 17, I'm going to go to college for it too. Mm -hmm. So I auditioned for schools and I got into the one I wanted, which was SUNY Purchase. I went there and I studied acting for four years and it was in college when I conveniently was dead broke. Someone asked me if I wanted to do a kid's birthday party, do a magic show. And I was like, of course I do. Of course. Why not? The catch Katie is that I did not have a kid's magic show. So, (laughs) oh, I had a deck of cards in my pocket and I could actually shoot a, shoot a fireball out of my sleeve. And I also like every magician had a box or a drawer filled with props that I have never used, but insisted on buying. Like magicians are hoarders like this. We see something incredible and we will buy it, not knowing how we're going to use it. I put together a kid's magic show with the things I had and I love children. And I quickly realized I loved performing for children and that the sound of a group of children laughing is like the best sound ever. Not just laughing, but like crying, laughing, like a group of children hysterically laughing. I did one show. Two people from that show asked me if I would do other shows and it spiderwebbed out from there. And all of a sudden, I, in a year or two later, I did, I was doing 300 shows in a year. I would do two to three shows every 
Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. So I do about six a week. Wow. Each of them is 45 minutes. And the way I, the way I made a good show was five to 10 minutes at a time, one mm. routine at a time until I had an hour. And then I took out the least funny or fun or interesting 15 minutes. And by sucking that part out, then you end up with a pretty solid 45 minutes, a, a big part of my job as a, uh, a person who works with kids often is conditioning the audience. I call it audience conditioning, uh, letting them know what game we're going to play. We're going to play a game today, everybody. It's called Magic Show. It's where you sit in your seat. Um, but if you're raising your hand and smiling really big, maybe you get to be a part of the show. And if your grandma is holding your arm up and your face doesn't look like you want to be a part of the show, I'm not going to make you be a part of the show. Mm -hmm. So don't worry. I feel like that's a really good lesson for other artists in terms of audience participation and how to do it and how not to do it. Yeah, there's there's different schools of thought on it. But in my show, I know I pretty much know for each part of my show, whenever wherever my show is at, because it changes yearly. But I know basically for each part of my show, what kind of kid and what age of kid would not only uh, be good for that routine, but would also feel a really good sense of success at it. Yeah. You have to know the target and who's going to react best. Every single person that comes on stage with me is a loose cannon. I mean, you have a kid, you know, you never, you, we were just I talking. Do. You said he was at soccer and then he turned into a motorcycle and was running around <laughs> making motorcycle sounds. Like, I love that so much. Uh, we've, I've had stuff like that happen on stage and I will never tell them to stop it. If anything, unfortunately, the show is going to run a few minutes longer because if a kid wants to be a motorcycle, well, we're about to talk motorcycle kids. I mean, like I might do it with him, you know? Um, or if a kid starts to do a fun little dance, I'll stop everything and I'll say, wait a minute, hold on, do that again. They'll do it or they won't. If they don't want to do it, I'm not going to make them do it. But nine times out of 10, they'll do their little funny little dance again. <laughs> and then I'll say, hold on, did I do it right? And I'll do it wrong. And they'll say, no, do it like this. Or I'll say, you guys don't want to see Henry here do the do his dance again, right? And everyone will be like, yeah, we do. <laughs> and I'll be like, Henry, if you do it one more time, they'll go crazy. The kid feels like a hero. Yeah. And it took 30 seconds or a minute. <laughs> and um, and then we go on with our show, you know, and some magic happens in his hands in a moment. That's so cool. That's what great validation, especially for youngsters that maybe are a little nervous to get on stage, have never done something like that before, to have an interaction with a professional performer like you and then have great audience reaction. Yeah, totally. I am. Um... I, uh, that's one of the things that I am confident in is audience conditioning and control. I've just had to do it so many times over the years. I mean, the way you get good at anything, this is going to be corny, but is by doing it a million times, right? Like that's how you get really good at anything. I've done shows. I've done plenty of shows where there's no kids there. I just love it when they are because it's so funny. It's just so fun. I like to think of it like a Pixar movie. I would hope that the parents are excited to go to my show, which they which they usually are, because they know that it's not they're not going to be checking their cell phone in the middle because it's going to be ridiculous. Because just like Pixar, <laughs> half the jokes are for them. Right. And frankly, I think they should because they bought the tickets and they should have a great time too. It shouldn't be like uh you know, there's no pandering to children 
whatsoever because children are smart. They're smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. Absolutely. A lot of, I think a lot of performers give them credit for. And when I see some performers talking to children like this children, <laughs> I kind of want to bang my head against the wall. They don't talk to kids on Sesame street. Like, right. like what they did on Barney, right. you know, they ask the kids questions. Yeah. Elmo's like, Hey, how was your day? What are you doing over there? Oh, Elmo, you know, I'm doing this. Right. It's a normal conversation. It's not patronizing in the least. It's not patronizing in the least. There's a beauty in talking to a five-year-old and keeping things really simple and asking them what they want to be when they grow up and having them tell you they want to be a truck. Well, if you asked my son, he currently wants to be a garbage man. A very popular answer because the garbage truck is a mystery machine. I love this attitude that you have regarding working with kids in particular. I do a lot of youth and family presenting. And so working in that space, I'm always looking for artists, performers that have that same attitude because like you said, I don't want my audiences to feel patronized, um, kids or adults. And I think it is equally important that whatever the art form is, it is tailored for kids, but there's enough there for adults that they are equally engaged and entertained, right? And if they're completely bored out of their minds, um, that's not a great experience for them. And that's not great audience development, frankly. Um, they're not necessarily going to come back if <laughs> the artist I've brought in is is not tailoring the work or really paying attention to who is in the audience. Yeah, You get to a point in your career where you set the show down and you're in New York for 11 years. So how did you jump to that point being off Broadway and run for that long? I graduated from college with a BFA in acting and I was fortunate enough to graduate with an agent and a manager that I signed with right out of college. So I was immediately auditioning in New York City. 20 years ago, if you wanted to be an actor in film and television, you kind of had to live in Los Angeles or New York City. That's where the heads of all of the major networks were when cable was still burgeoning. So I would audition during the day. All of my gigs would be on weekends. And so I would be in the tri-state area. In spring of 2011, I wanted to propose to Christine and I didn't have the savings to get her a ring. But I knew that I've been tired for a long time of running around with my suitcase. I asked myself, what do I have that I can sell? Once or twice, I had done a show with a theater and split the box office with them and having a ball because I had a stage with lighting. Instead of me going to the people, I thought, how do I get the people to come to me? So one of my long-term clients and friends ran a theater, a small theater behind Lincoln Center called the Manhattan Movement and Arts Center. I asked if I could rent the theater for two weeks. She immediately saw what I saw because she'd seen my show a million times. I'd been at her house, at her beach house. Uh, she knew the value of what I was going to, what I was trying to do. And she helped me originally produce it and pay, pay some money towards a little advertising. But I literally walked into a theater and I asked if I could rent the theater and they said, yes. And I think the good lesson there is don't be afraid to straight up ask for stuff. The worst they could say is no, we could get butts and seats for two weekends, easy, sold out. I knew that, especially once I told people I finally have my own show. All of my private clients would come. Then that two weeks turned into two months because it was just going so well. We extended and no one else needed the space. And that two months turned into nine months. Wow. We ran, we started in October. We ran up to Christmas. And then the week between Christmas and New Year's was bonkers. 
every show sold out, two show days. Families needed something to do. That's exactly right. Everybody's out of school. Nobody knows what to do because it's freezing outside. So we did it for nine months before we took a break, fully intending to come back the following fall. And we did a couple shows on the road. Again, one thing turned into the next and that became a big part of our income and business. It was touring on the road as well as sitting down in our home in New York and having our show running, uh, which as someone who had ran around for a decade and a half, uh, both with a car and without a car, driving from New Jersey to Long Island to Connecticut, all over, and and having the having amazing times, performing for wonderful people, giant events, tiny events, everything. I've done shows for one kid, three kids, and 3,000 kids. And you learn something new with each one of them. So nothing, not and not at all complaining about being a gig worker and working gigs as a magician at all. But being able to get in a cab and take that cab to my theater. Oh, that felt so good, Katie. <laughs> and I could keep all my stuff there. Oh, that felt so right. good, Katie. Yeah. I originally walked into that theater with my kids' magic show, right? That I would do at a corporate event or a private party or a birthday party or whatever. And I walked in and I said, just turn the lights up. Do they flicker on and off? Can you do that once somewhere? I didn't have a lighting designer. Over time, I added in an actual stage manager and I added in an actual lighting person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was using what they had in the space. Part of my experience of throwing myself into uh, doing a show off Broadway and selling tickets through a ticketing service and advertising and marketing um, has been knowing how to be flexible and not be rigid in my process. No two theaters are the same size and shape, even if they are close. You know, sometimes you won't have a, uh, any space off stage in one. One will be raised higher, or sometimes the audience is on the same level as the stage. I've learned for me, it's far easier to work and be flexible with you. You are a you're a creator. You're curating work for your people. You're being of, of service to your community. And we're going to come together, you and me, and we're going to make together, we're going to make it happen. It's a lot easier for us as people to be flexible and adapt to the space than force a permanent stage to adapt to us. A hundred percent. I know some people that were traveling around with a show that they seemed to insist on wanting to nail into the floor of the stage everywhere they went. Oh, and no. my first thought was, I don't think anybody's going to let you do that. <laughs> you know, one person did. And so they thought they could do it. And I, I'm sure they figured something out. But like, that's an inflexible thing. If you, if you say, well, in our rider, we need to nail into your stage. Well, you've just closed yourself off to a lot of potential work by doing that, you know? Yeah, no, as a presenter, I'm probably not going to let that slide. I'm <laughs> just saying. I want to go back to the beginning of that story and highlight something you said about you had a relationship with the theater owner. Yes. For me, that says something about the power of relationships and sustained relationships and how it's okay to ask for help. Um, and then take that help when offered and, you know, build a community around yourself. It's going to sound cheese ball, but I think everything is relationships. I want to talk a little bit about how your business model changed during the pandemic. But from my perspective as a presenter, 
um, the reason we were able to work together in that new business model, which I'll have you explain in a moment, was because of the relationship I had with Christine already just through some affinity group work and getting to know her, frankly, on Zoom. Um, out of that came a great collaboration where I suggested like, oh, hey, well, why don't we do this model and try this out, which led to you working with me at the Midland Center for the Arts. Um, but had we not had that relationship before, I don't know that I would have been comfortable bouncing ideas off of her and saying, hey, why don't we try this? Hey, why don't we try that? Like, and, you know, and really collaborating on what that engagement was going to look like. Yeah. I mean, you want to trust people, right? If I read a review that tells me the new movie that I want to see with like every star in it is amazing, I might go see it. But Katie, if we're talking and you're super excited and you tell me how great it was, I will definitely go see it mm -hmm. because I trust you. And I see, not read, I see and I feel your energy of how it made you feel. And that's what we want to do. We want to feel. Even if you don't know exactly what it is, but you trust your peer, you will far more likely pay the money to go see the movie or pay a larger sum of money to a dance company to come to your theater. We just want to go out and do our show the best we can, right? And that creates a relationship with your audience that you get the credit for. And we want, yeah. I, I want you to get the credit for it. I want everyone to go, Katie knows what she is doing because then Katie, even if we don't do another magic show, maybe we collaborate on something else. And I appreciate you thinking about that in the long term, right? What is the audience reaction going to be? How can I, as a presenter, then utilize that experience as a tool to build out to other opportunities? Um, because if we don't think in that way and collaborate in that way, there is no performing arts center. There's no space for the amazing Max to play or other companies to come through if um, we're not collaborative in the nature and all want what's best. That's exactly right. I'm so blessed at so many of our my shows. There is a group of people with special needs. I so often have a group of adults with special needs or kids with special needs. In fact, I was just at Wolf Trap and I pulled a kid on stage and he was deaf. And I did not know that. He was smiling and waving his hand. And I looked him in the eye, Katie, talking about picking someone. And I was like, perfect. This kid is stoked. We are going to have a great time. And we got on stage and then I saw his uh, cochlear implant. And he couldn't hear me actually. And it was the most magical moment for me. When the routine was done and he had a ball, anytime a kid helps me in my show, I give them a gift uh, of a magic wand that they get to keep and take home from the stage, from the show. But I only give it to them if they catch it. And if they don't catch it, they get another chance to catch it. So they all they, they always get it, you know what I'm saying? But um, there's something I think really beautiful in just the action of, tossing a kid something and having them catch it and the feeling of accomplishment we all feel when somebody tosses you something and you catch it. And when this um, kid who was deaf caught this magic wand, the audience went bananas. And it was at Wolf Trap and we were outdoors. There were 700 people. And I don't know what he could hear, if he could hear any of it, but you could see the place go crazy. And then he runs off the stage. And I had this moment in my mind where I went, write that one down later, Max. There was a, you just worked through having a kid that was deaf. I'm more proud of moments like that. Another moment, similar moment was I do a bit in my show where 
I have a, uh, a, a quote unquote truth detector because I don't want to call it a lie detector because I don't want to call children liars. I ask the first question is like, is your name Dylan? Yes. And I look at the thing and I go, that's correct. See, that's how it works. If you, if your name wasn't Dylan, it would go bam, bam, bam. And then I say, okay, Dylan, are you having fun at the magic show? Yes, that is correct. Um, Dylan, do you like school? And he froze and he looked at me and he almost started to tear up. And I said, Aww. oh, it's okay. It's okay. And he said, school's really hard. And he was developmentally delayed. And I didn't know this. I said, Dylan, school was so hard for me too. Can I get a hug? And he gave me a hug. And we went on and we moved forward through that moment. And afterwards, a teacher in the audience came up and said, I just want to tell you, I have been working with children with special needs my entire life. How you handled that situation when the kid obviously struggled with school and felt embarrassed. He was feeling this feeling of embarrassment because I had told him that's the game. The game is just tell the truth. It's super easy. Are you sitting in a chair? Yes. Is your hair brown? Yes. Um, do you like school? And he froze because he was really embarrassed and he didn't want to say no. Moments like that stick with me because they freeze me in my tracks and all of the empathy in the world comes out. And I, the last thing, Katie, I would ever want to do is have a kid leave my stage feeling embarrassed. That is, to me, that is the worst thing that could happen. I, I de-escalated it with empathy and love. If that kind of thing is what my job is, I feel like I'm winning at life. Like that's the reason I still do this because that wouldn't happen at David Copperfield's show, but it happens all the time at mine. I really love this idea of magic being such an accessible medium of communication and art. Listen, you never know who's in the audience, right? It's true. And a lot of my work centers around community engagement, outreach, and you know, that's kind of a separate conversation in terms of barriers to participation and figuring out how to build those relationships. So just to know that an artist like you is thinking actively about that and is really willing to go that extra mile and figure out how to better connect with the community is really encouraging. I love to do it. So I want to go back to kind of come full circle on this conversation we've been having, going back to your initial question saying, what were we doing with this time during the pandemic? Um, and talking, bringing in a little bit of that access conversation we were having, you had to change your business model pretty dramatically starting in 2020. Um, you went virtual, which I'm going to have you talk about here in a moment. Um, and then you also added another element to your work in mental health and well-being. Um, again, you know, kind of drastically different than doing a magic show. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you changed your model and what came out of that pandemic period. Um, that you're now taking with you moving forward. I had taught magic before many times to many kids and I never loved it because magic takes a certain amount of focus, which is something I'm not good at. And I'm going to get to that in a moment when I talk about mental health, because I have ADHD and anxiety and depression, and it is something I've struggled with my entire life. And when you see me on stage, you might never think it, but in my daily life, um, I'm not the character in the movie. I'm the actor. I'm the magician. I'm Ma I'm just Max. When Broadway shut down, Christine and I were in New York and we knew if, if that happened, that's like, the, that was probably the most dramatic thing I could ever think of happening in New York City. 
is all of Broadway closing down. We were standing in her office and we knew at that moment that just like every other artist that was touring that year, all of our shows were going to be canceled. If they're closing Broadway, they're closing everything. Christine said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You teach magic virtually, and I'll send out an email blast to our email list. That was one of the things we had. Over the years, doing a show for that, that long, we have a big email list of people that have come to the show. And also, all those fans from when we started the show that I mentioned that I was like, I know I can fill two weeks of people, you know, because just like we just had relationships, right? So uh, Christine said, you're going to, you'll teach some magic and, uh, you know, we'll, I don't know, we'll make it really accessible price. Uh, I forget. I think at the beginning we were doing 25 bucks, 30 bucks or something for a 30 minute magic lesson one-on-one with Max, or if you have two kids or three kids, whatever, it doesn't matter, screen to screen, you know? And I said to her that, okay, of course I'll do it. I don't think that's going to work. And she sent out an email list on Sunday morning and within an hour, five people had signed up. And by the end of the day, 25 and that first week from when she sent it on the email on Sunday, like the email blast, I did 80 magic lessons that week. Wow. That's a lot of magic lessons. Yes. So what, what does Max learn? Just listen to your wife, Max. (laughs) Just, just stop arguing. The next week I did another 80. And then the third week I did a hundred just out of pride to see if I could hit a hundred in a week, week, right? (laughs) Just me being overconfident. And you know, it was draining and it was tiring, but it was so rewarding. And it was unlike any other teaching I'd done. But in 30 minutes, I developed over the course of a week, I developed three different 30-minute magic lessons that I could teach kids. And the main premise was you don't need to go buy anything. Everything is in your house. I want you to go get a dollar bill, two paper clips, four coins a pencil, and oh, and a deck of cards. And at the end of 30 minutes, even six-year-olds were are able to, were able to perform three tricks and have that feeling of accomplishment, which is this amazing thing in magic where when you learn a magic trick, you now have an actionable thing you can show someone else and be of service to them and make them smile. And they could do three, three tricks. And I would say, you know what, you know what it's called when you do three tricks? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, it's called a show. You now have a show. Go show someone in your house. By January, by the following January, I'd done 1,700 magic lessons. In addition to those lessons, then companies started calling and saying, can you, you know, everyone's still working remote. Can you perform for our annual meeting? Uh, Come and teach everybody some magic. It was a ball. Because not only am I teaching everybody, I'm also doing a show, you know, I'm doing tricks and we're making jokes and I'm cracking like this is an audio podcast, but we're talking on Zoom too. And if a if there's a Zoom window and someone's dog is in it, I, I can be like, oh, my God, watch out. There's a beast behind you or, <laughs> or something like that or, or the chill or the children. I'll ask the kid who his little brother's obviously next to him. I'll be I can say, like, who is that? Your grandpa? And he's like, yeah. Oh, it's my little brother, you know, but in real time. So the live part of it is still there. It's still Mm -hmm. live. We're just not in the same room. 
as someone who struggles with their own mental health greatly, uh, I have a lot of experience of dealing with my own mental health and things that have worked for me. And being able to say that I'm a professional magician is almost a ridiculous thing to me to be able to say, like, I might as well say, I'm a professional ninja. To say you're a magician, there's so few of us that have found a way to make this an actual life, a career, um, that I use that as an example of, look at this fun, but rather absurd and incredible thing that I do as a living. And here are ways that I was able to do that. And here are ways that you can be able to uh, find success for yourself in your life in many different ways. So I started doing this lecture on mental health and success. And uh, part of that lecture is taking care of yourself and not beating yourself up and the power of things like organization. And hey, we can go all the way back to what we were talking about before asking for help, just asking for help or at, or being curious. People don't think of it. We're sometimes we're a little afraid to ask for help or we're afraid to reach out. Once we realize that the only thing holding us back is us, curiosity will get you all sorts of places that you want to go. I think in the performing arts industry, we have a, a little bit of that perfectionist streak. We put a lot of extra pressure on ourselves yes. um, and to be able to talk so transparently about issues of mental health, about burnout, about the pressure we put on ourselves and others about this idea of like you, you do it for the love of the art. Right. And so the expectation is there that you're going to do 25 things when you're only being paid to do four things because you love it. And that adds to that stress and that burnout. And uh, it's incredibly important to have transparent conversations about that. I agree with you completely that it's very important that we talk about it. And one thing that I'm focusing on right now is being more, is trying to be more specific about it of what are we talking about within mental health? Because like I, I have uh, ADHD, I've had it since I was a kid, but I was only diagnosed five years ago, like officially. And I take some medication for it and it's helped my life greatly. I've tried meditation, it's helped my life incredibly greatly. And um, I've created new habits and I, I, I'm trying. And you know what? I'm constantly failing, but I'm trying again and again and again. Part of the lesson is repetition. You can't just try once and say it didn't work. It goes back to that, what the little nugget you gave us at the very beginning of our conversation about you get something, you get good at something by doing it a million times. Uh, taking care of yourself is the same way. You're not going right. to be perfect at it the first time around. You have to keep working at it. Like you just said, you know, I'm, it's only my job to do four things, but I'm doing 25. Uh, and like, I do that too. We make these giant lists to do lists that we would never in a million years accomplish instead of just doing the four things that are the priority. So think back to the beginning of your career. Um, what do you know now that you wish you had known then? I wish I knew the value of having a partner in crime. My life and my business and my work has grown and flourished because of Christine, my wife. People ask me, how did you turn your show into an off-Broadway show? How, how does someone do that? And I say, well, you need, you need my wife. And they go, oh, I need another person. I say, I say, no, you actually need my wife and you can't have her. She's mine. <laughs> She's a rock star. And our skill sets are, we have similar skill sets and very different ones. She, like you, is a very type A organized person. And I am a very scattered person who's always struggled with organization. Beyond that, there's lots of ways that we complement each other too. But I wish when I was younger, I wish that I had known the value as a young magician of working and collaborating 
with other people and not trying to just muscle everything myself. I love that. So Max, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I am so glad to have you as as a artist friend, a collaborator and uh, a partner in this industry. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us today. Your family, Katie, anytime. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for letting me ramble. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back, everyone. Really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Max. I know I did. I think you can hear how much I laughed during the course of that interview because Max is just a naturally funny guy. So let's dive in. Josh, what did you think? I feel like Max could have had, it's either like a superhero performer origin story or a supervillain origin story (laughs) because growing up in a family of mimes could go either way. I think it's super cool and be, you know, I mean the nature of of Max as this vibrant over the top performer and personality um on stage personality really lends itself to that origin story. It all makes so much sense that he's been a street performer who's been riling up crowds since he was a child. But I'm really glad it went in the hero in the in the superhero uh, stage performer, inspiring kids, shaping children, direction. Yeah, what a what a touching story about the um, well, both stories he told about the the, the deaf child and about school being yeah. tough. What's good is that the um, the machine, the truth detector, must have been off then because I know a little bit earlier Max talked about how wonderful his school was, and when he said it was hard for him, I'm just glad the machine didn't go wah 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 because that would have been really awkward. Um, no, but that was so touching and and very moving, and and you know Max is so great with kids. I've seen it firsthand at, at the show that he's done in New York as well as um, online during the pandemic. Yeah, I love just hearing him talk about you know how to handle those challenging times on stage and really just, you know, just that approach of coming at it with a, with a side of compassion. Uh, I thought that was really great. Uh, my team at Quad City Arts, uh, like right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually brought in Max to, uh, to do a Zoom uh, magic lesson. Um, so we, we got to send out, you know, the paper clips, the pencils, the cards uh, to the team. And then he came on and uh, taught us all magic. And it was, it was really great. I mean, because it was like for the first time, like I, I watched all of my, my teammates, uh, like, uh, you know, just light up like they were children again. And it was, it was really cool. I mean, so it was just, you know, one of those things that sort of uh, transcends age and, and ability, which is very cool. Yeah, he introduces himself as a magician and an actor, but Max's superpower is communication. Whenever he speaks to anyone during a performance, he is so deeply engaged that you feel so validated as a human being, no matter your age, at any point during that show. I love his openness about mental health, too, and what he's doing now with those talks. Um, Many of you already know, but for those that don't, my wife has dealt with major depression, and she was also in a car accident, had uh, some brain injuries. And, you know, we we learned pretty quickly that there's a major stigma all around mental health and disabilities. And, um, you know, people are feel awkward talking about it. My wife is very open about it. And so uh, just like Max, because we think the only way to combat that stigma is to let people know that it's more common than they think and that it's okay to talk about it and that they're not alone in this and that there are people there to help and want to help and can help. So 
it's so important. I agree with you, Brian. I really appreciate Max's openness about that. And I think sharing personal stories is the best way, honestly, to break down that stigma. Um, coming out of the last two and a half years or so, we are having a lot more conversations about this as an industry, but there's a lot of ground still to make up. Um, but I do appreciate Matt, Max's approach to it with humor, right? With that lightness, helping pe- make people feel comfortable about it. But it honestly, coming from a male perspective as well, I think it's maybe sometimes a little bit harder for, for men to, to talk about that. It has not been culturally acceptable for a really, really long time. I mean, it seems so like effortlessly happy and upbeat at all times and sort of realizing that, you know, people are really good at hiding that. Um, and, and so to have somebody to to acknowledge the fact that, you know, sometimes uh, that's that's the outward persona, that sometimes things aren't okay inside. And I talk about burnout a lot, um, and I think it's because I myself am struggling with burnout, and I myself, am, you know, I'm struggling with, you know, the things that come with that, that you know, the anxiety, the depression, um, you know, the being unsure. We don't necessarily name it or anything else, but we any one of our staff will come up to me and say, hey, I just need to break for a show or two. And we figure it out. We we figure out a way for, for people to break away um, and get some time away during the week. However, we can do it to where they, they come back refreshed. We can model what good mental health care and self-care can look like and that it doesn't have to be this huge endeavor, but it can just be saying, I need a break. And then and a supervisory figure saying, That's great. All people do. Well, friends, thank you so much for digging into this topic in particular, uh, coming out of our conversation with Max today. It's so important. I know it's very personal for many of us. So I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing today. I don't think this is the last time that we're going to talk about this on this podcast or uh, as members of this industry. So thank you again for sharing. Thanks everyone for being with us today on There's No Business Like, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the No Business Like podcast. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanhoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. You can find and follow us everywhere at nobusinesslike.com, which has links to all of our socials. Stay in touch, my friends. Did you have a chance to think about I it? I didn't read it. I was driving when you sent it in an orchestra concert. I totally forgot you sent it until you sent it. <laughs>